I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Carl Abrahamson, presenting Intuition as a State of Grace. Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry is available from trapart.net. T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Support the podcast at our Patreon. www.patreon.com slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A two, three, C-A-R-L. Your support is greatly appreciated. Imagine a person fiercely focused on the creation of an object. He or she is undisturbed and the surroundings are optimized for this specific creation. The vision is clear, sketches or preparatory fragments have helped the gearing up for the moment of execution, amplified by suitable music and perhaps even special clothes for the occasion. The tension increases, the work is begun, and when it's over, a great sense of well-being and release becomes overwhelming. Did I just describe an artist or a magician at work? Did I just describe someone externalizing inner creative concepts or someone programming the cosmos? Well, both of course, as they're essentially the same in method and approach. This little talk today will focus on the conceptual similarities of the creative process involved in art and magic. As we'll see, there are considerably more more aspects that unite them and set them apart. This is not implying that the one always perfectly corresponds to the other, but there is more than enough common ground to see that the creative process involved is highly similar. What makes the two areas differ is usually one of purpose and potential in extension. This common ground is not surprising. At one point in time, art and magic were basically the same, intertwined and necessary for tribal well-being. Cave paintings, ritual dances, evocative music, programmatic poetry, talismanic jewelry, charged weapons were all part of a creative process with a distinct purpose to make something desired happen, and to make something undesired not happen. As with many things in human cultural development, major existential shifts took place, and things became specialized and compartmentalized, a process still going on today, for good or bad. The mystically spiritual and ecstatic became organized in religions, with professional proxy priesthoods. The previously so integrated artistic expressions as agents of will change instead became particular professions for individuals with a specific talent. 
but where did this talent originally come from? In our human progress, evolution and development, we contain everything that's passed before us in our DNA. We are like cosmic tape recorders in an ever-evolving process of refinement and adaptation. Special qualities needed for survival are passed on in tradition, myth, and genetic mass. This is still being conceptualized and expressed by artistically creative people in many fields. That's their function, so to speak, to move everything onwards and bring the good stuff along. As mentioned before, this creative strain was divided into specialized skills and professions. Some people became scientists, some historians, and some continued manifesting their own more personal visions in externalized artistic forms. These have been some of the main sanctioned expressions and professions within human culture. But there have also been those who've retained uh, traditional yet highly experimental labor in working with the unseen and the immeasurable. Sometimes these have been more or less integrated in society, but most often not. The magicians have most often worked on their own or in small groups of like-minded souls, dealing with basically the same behavioral methods and questions, but usually with an added ingredient, personal will. Meaning that what is created also carries a charge that helps change things in unseen, immeasurable, and presently unknown ways. When art as such became integrated as a more or less necessary but commodified field of work, it was still an expression of this same human need. We need art and culture as reflective surfaces, personal catharsis and release, as something to initiate existential conversations and thought fodder, essential fuel for progress and development. Everyone knows that and it's always there. The amount of people actively dealing with art, as opposed to dealing in art, is minimal today compared to the totality of human beings. And yet, their status is still high. That is, if the artist in question is successful. Even in the most totalitarian of societies, there is also art to amplify the condone, allowed and encouraged agenda. One should perhaps also enter the very sensitive question here. What exactly is art? There have been so many definitions over the centuries that one gets tired by the mere overview. Berenson's life enhancement angle, Leo Tolstoy's egalitarian, almost anti-beatific angle, Goethe's and later Steiner's spiritual ditto, Joseph Boy's social sculpture ditto, Gurdjieff's objective ditto, Duchamp's sardonically detached ditto. It's all one big mess or mesh of contradicting yet eloquent theories and postulates. It's really no wonder that contemporary art theory is so ephemeral and elusive. Basically, the definitions seem to go intimately hand in hand with whatever tradition or school that will soon be obsolete.
The only common denominator that really seems to permeate is art's original function, a magical one. But that aspect is seldom looked upon with admiring eyes by our civilization's defining minds. What then of magic? It's almost as chaotic there, but more muddled and often quite vile. I think Alistair Crowley came up with the best definition of magic so far. Quote, magic is the science and art of causing change to occur in conformity with will, end quote. All other attempts at definition seem quite futile compared to that. Even in the most well-ordered and confined expressions, the artist often feels a need to go beyond the formal norms and normal forms. Art history is packed with individual examples that have led themselves straight into draconian measures because they felt some kind of need to, as is the history of science. The pioneers are seldom praised until the masses catch up and then it's usually too late to enjoy it. The deviators, rebels, iconoclasts have always been able to sneak at least some degree of seed sowing into works of art otherwise condoned and integrated in a wholesome totality of a greater good. This can vary from a new stylistic touch to an unseen piece of content as in hidden symbols or even conscious subversions of of content or form, etc. Basic psychology tells us that the artist needs to express him or herself almost compulsively. Feelings, desires, skill, excellence, or even self-doubt in a form that touches people enough to react. The reaction becomes a validation not only of the process involved, but also of course of the person and mind behind it all. When that's not there, the frustration of invisibility and poverty abounds. When it's there, on the other hand, a deep-rooted sense of bliss and meaning takes hold. And this vulnerability of the individual supports a strong system of market and moral control, which is something artists have far too often adapted to. For reasons having to do with traditional stigma or ostracism, the magician has up until recently been quite content with working in silence or in a hidden sphere. Let's not forget that the word occult means hidden in Latin. That however doesn't mean that magicians and occultists have been less susceptible to personal sensitivity, weakness and ego compensations quite often on the contrary. But there's one thing that usually sets their work apart from that of the artists. It's the concept of defined will. A magician has a distinct sense of purpose, a hopefully well thought through plan, and a goal for the work in question. If it's a matter of a ceremony, it's to uphold a balance and atmosphere. If it's an active ritual, it's to change something specific in the small or grand arena of life. The creative process then acts as a means and not as an end in itself. It is interesting to note that magicians usually avoid the limelight as the work itself holds precedence. 
The artist, on the other hand, can use both negative and positive visibility to his or her own benefit. That's simply because our society needs scandalous individuals and outsiders in general to relieve collective tension. A successful and media-conscious artist works equally well as a movie star. At times, magicians appear who take on celebrity or notoriety status, but they can only expect flack or negative exposure. Alistair Crowley and Anton LaVey are two well-known examples from the 20th century. So, what unites these two proto-human endeavors that were once wholly intertwined? Some principal ties are irrationality as a key or necessary agent. The rational mind frame hampers genuine creativity. Also, imagination and visionary ability. You trust what you perceive and not what others tell you to perceive. Also, heavy emotional engagement in the creative process as opposed to purely causal, detached labor. If you don't feel and believe in what, what's going on, everything will be a barren and soulless endeavor. Also, externalization of inner processes. New life comes from within and moves outside. Also, creation as an umbrella for a supra-ecstatic flow, more than mere joy in working, elevated states of mind, ideas and epiphanies as results of the mind being in a neutral gear, so to speak. Also, manifestation as building block or aggregate of experience, a life's work. One thing leads to another, and if one is conscious of and grateful about it, many life-enhancing synchronicities will follow. Also, integration of the symbolic. Naturalism is not possible and only pleases the rational mind. Where schooling within a tradition is often necessary, the development of one's own language or code is crucial for maximum impact. In magic, this means, for instance, being schooled in one specific tradition, like Western ceremonial magic, and then drifting off into your own devices and methods. In art, it could be schooling or being inspired within, for instance, surrealism, and then moving on in personal integrations of, for instance, scientific symbols and codes. Also, an integrated breach with or of the previous stage. Uh, tradition is transcended, and not seldom aggressively. Rebels rebel in both instances. Hiccups and revolutions are necessary for overall health because the most radical and extreme occurrences always end up as rigid and conservative environments. We could call this iconoclastic bowel movements. There is also another common key ingredient in this magical art soup, and that is intuition, that lovely non-rational flow of existence so cherished by Taoists and creative people. But what exactly is it? It's a temporary freedom from causal bonds and rational thinking that sets inner creativity and also happiness free.
It's a well-known but pretty undefined positive state of mind that helps us a lot in decision-making and creation. What would art be if intuition wasn't there? A mere outer construction work of ideas or concepts. What would magic be without intuition? A mere reading of a cosmic user's manual. Trusting one's intuition may be the most important ingredient there is. Especially so in an overall culture that is increasingly binary and dualistic in both outlook and method. An artist in our sphere of the world usually works in a much more causal and commodified structure than a magician. In your studio, you create. That's highly satisfying, but you also know that you have to get by by going through many motions to secure sustenance and exposure of, of these creations. That's because our culture as such only really allows approved entrepreneurs and manufacturers of acceptable influx through very complex systems of exhibition, appraisal, validation, criticism, and financial compensation. If you play the game by the rules, you're more than welcome to compete for your place in the sun of recognition and appreciation. Now, this is of course a generalized view of the situation, but no less true. Most artists unnecessarily restrain themselves by adapting to a very clearly defined set of rules. You fight and get bitter and disillusioned if you don't succeed, or fight and get happy if you do. In a way, the outer circumstances dictate the inner feelings, because there's an outer arbiter or commander commenting and judging whether or not what you make has any value or merit as such. But the direction should be from the inside outwards. Yes, a filtering of external influx is inevitable and perhaps even essential, but it needs to be filtered on the inside, in the alchemical oven, in the fire, in the womb. Seed come from the outside in, but the new life comes from the inside outwards. That sexual or procreative analogy is a central one in both art and magic, or should be. We should remember these kinds of very basic wisdoms from many bright minds within philosophy and magic, but perhaps specifically Buckminster Fuller when he declared, mimic nature and you can't go wrong. Let's zoom back to earlier phases when art was still ingrained with magic and vice versa. That is, when it had the power to change and not only to entertain. When the power of the artwork, object or performance wasn't measured by transactions, validating the creator in question, but rather by if the outcome of its charge was successful. The worth of the artist then lay in the ability to systematize and charge chosen artistic expressions, like a sculpture, dance, song, painting, etc. Success in that sphere guaranteed an elevated status within the tribe or commune. 
In my experience, however, it's as if contemporary magic and its practitioners are lost in a maze of conservative content and very rigid traditional approaches to form when it comes to applying this ancient primordial science and art to a modern world. In the same way as art as such has been pushed back to being an aestheticized, commodified world of forms filtered through desperate and petty egos and their external commanders. Too much content and energy on the one hand and too much form and intellectual nervousness on the other. It seems that both areas have become victims of our binary times with rigidity and lack of courage as banners. The result being that positions become heavier and heavier in the choking illusion of safety, with occasional volcanic psychic outbursts when the respective intellectual decompression chambers aren't working as they should. There should be a healthier balance. It seems I can't deliver a lecture without returning to one of the most potent and beautiful metaphorical scenes ever in movie history. Mickey Mouse as the sorcerer's apprentice in Disney's Fantasia. In youthful enthusiasm yet ample laziness, Mickey Mouse uses magical tricks to make cleaning house simpler, and this to catastrophic results. But he learns his lesson well from the returning and very angry magician. One needs to know not only the tools of one's trade, but also to be very clear in what one wants to achieve with these tools. What if a young generation consciously connected the currently separated ends of the power cable of metaprogrammatic content and alluringly suitable form? And what if they not only joined forces, but actually joined the very life force itself. It's a very challenging thought and potentially a dangerous one. During the past decade, a keen interest in esoteric protagonists, movements and artists has seeped into the art world. We have, for instance, seen a revitalized appraisal of masters like Swedish painter Hilma of Klint. The exhibition that traveled a couple of years ago uh, all over Europe and I think also the US has been seen by all, over a million people. And that hardly sounds like an esoteric exhibition. In 2008, the Centre Pompidou in Paris housed an enormous exhibition called Traces du Sacré, Traces of the Sacred, which was an overwhelming celebration of art and the occult. The Venice Biennial of 2013 was packed with works of an occult nature, ranging from Lady Frida Harris, the woman who painted Crowley's Thoth tarot deck, to Carl Jung's Red Book, to Borges' Imaginary Beings, and on to Xul Solar's collages. There are nowadays academic symposia focusing on the intersection between art and occult history. The term occulture is now almost mainstream and indicates previously esoteric themes as having been accepted and exotericized. Also, new generations of artists are re-expressing and integrating occult, religious or spiritual themes in their own way, both in form and content. 
This could vary from using Goethe's color schemes, listening to inner voices, experimenting with higher states of consciousness, or uh, allowing experiences in nature to shape one's expressions via inclusion of distinctly occult iconography in images and other kinds of works. Quite simply, the colorful gray area between art and the occult is established today and ever-growing. To a greater extent than ever before, young artists tend not to separate the process from the product, so to speak. The process can be magical and the art object then becomes something that carries a charge beyond the merely aesthetic or personally cathartic. In fact, in these times, an increasing number of artworks become talismans. They are the results of a consciously willed yet intuitive process, and they contain remnants not only of that process as a result, but also energy that has been set in motion in a desired direction. And whether the partakers realize or know this, know this is irrelevant, but that artists work with this kind of thinking and making is in fact highly relevant and also very, very healthy. Where art for so long has touched upon attribute rather than on essence, there seems to be a shift going on in which the positions are being diametrically changed. The essential meaning becomes more important than that of the attribute of aesthetics and commercial value. And this, of course, brings us back to primordial times, when it was indeed more important that the artwork contained power than an, than an attractive surface. When language gradually took over, rationality and structure followed suit. Yet the need for the primordial, magical expression has always been there all along, and now seems to finally resurface within its own perimeters. This is without a doubt an effect of a too rational culture gone overboard. In our desperation to survive as a species, let alone as individuals, different remedies are needed than the ones prescribed by a status quo complacency. This is an all-permeating and anxious movement in our present times. So it's hardly surprising that art shrugs off some superficiality and assumes the responsibility it once had. Art should not only inspire us to live more fully and think free thoughts and feel free emotions. It should also present solutions and alternatives beyond the many rationalistic, materialistic, binary fallacies we have already experienced or committed. But the beauty of it all is that this is not going to happen in dogmatic, intellectual ways or through an abstract postmodernist discourse. It's going to be more direct, vibrant, alive, poetic, emotional, violent, and expressive. Although perhaps shaped in entirely new languages and codes, it won't be hard to interpret at all. It's going to be guided by intuition and survival instinct, and not by faint references to previous isms or demagogic simplifications to alleviate bad Western consciences.
Individual intuition may be that original state of grace so brutally shoved aside by monotheistic religion to pave the way for hubristic self-destruction. The art that catches this drift and integrates proto-human desire and behavior will become the talismanic art that will literally help save the world as we know it and love it. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a talk by Carl Abrahamson, Intuition as a State of Grace. For more, please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. My website, drvanessasinclair.net. CarlAbrahamson.com or RenderingUnconscious.org Rendering Unconscious is also a book. Rendering Unconscious, Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry. Please visit our publisher's website, trapart.net. That's T-R-A-P-A-R-T dot net. Please support the podcast at our Patreon. You can find the link below or visit www.patreon.com slash V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23-C-A-R-L. increasingly chaotic world, or so it seems. It's always best to focus on things you know with certainty have a tangible value for you, before delving out as a contemporary Don Quixote on the evanescent barricades of social media. These things probably are, or should be, ultra-personal and hence you should perhaps indulge in private rather than spilling all your beans publicly. This in itself is a challenge 
in such a flaunting culture as ours. But that's exactly why it's extra important. When someone asks you what you've done for others or the world today, either lie and say nothing, or tell the truth if that's more comfortable. You may have masturbated, had sex with someone, cleaned the house, listened attentively to your favorite record, read a great book, etc. Something that is of no apparent utilitarian use to anyone else but you. Why is this more important than engaging in ambitious problem solving in these times of global crises? Because it genuinely makes you happier. If you are indeed engaged in altruistic work and efforts, that's great as long as it's not only a lifestyle accessory. It needs to be an honest endeavor to have meaning and value, just like masturbation. It's the indulgence in making your innermost fantasy a satisfying, tangible reality that creates meaning in life. Integrating that meaning in your daily existence is an irrevocably efficient way to create a much better and happier world. Genuine, general altruism never stems from frustrated individual sources. Therefore, never believe any one demagogue who's frustrated or not successful at what they claim makes them happy. Have they not masturbated enough lately? Have you? Have you?